I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I mean, does Beyonce know how expensive her tickets are? I don't know what her concept of, like, expensive means or is. (laughs) But, yeah, so I'm sure Beyonce would be like, what's two grand? That's just, like, you know, breakfast or something. Zayd DeGamse loves Beyonce. I mean, he wakes up every day to the sound of her giving a motivational speech. So if Zayd can't afford to go to her concert... Who can? Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Today on the show, who is stuff expensive? Like concert tickets. Hey, I like Beyonce as much as the next person. Unless that person is paying two grand for a seat, then Beyonce and I... Not so much. So, is this just how it is now? Or could there be a way to get in the door without breaking the bank? And speaking of expensive, have you checked out hotels lately? Booking a room for a few nights can cost as much as a used Toyota. But why are two queens in an overpriced minibar now so pricey? Up first... The biggest cost in most of our lives is where we live. And housing affordability is only getting worse. This isn't exactly new, so why isn't it getting any better? Right now, in Canada, all roads lead to housing. For the economy, the big worry, record household debt coming from supersized mortgages. Politically, housing could bring down governments. If you're young, you could be basing major life choices not on what you want to do, but where you can afford to live. Housing is a national preoccupation, and the solution to making it more affordable now seems clear. We need to build more homes. So, why aren't we doing it? I was seeing rents for one or two bedrooms for like $2,500, And our budget was not even close to that. And I didn't even know where to to come up with that amount. And and it was always a basement, always like something. And whenever I found something more affordable, it was not nice. Kenya Airdis lives in Calgary. This past February, her family moved to a new place. She was pregnant with their second child, but four days after moving in, they were evicted. He said he didn't know that I was pregnant and that he didn't want disturbance in the building, a nuisance. That was his word. And I was like, wow. So I agreed to, to leave because I was like, I am not going to live in a place where I'm not welcome and my children are not welcome. Things did not go well after that. Whatever they found to rent... They couldn't afford. 
they ended up at a shelter. I was like thinking to myself, is this a new era here in Canada, in Calgary? And I'm like, because why is this becoming so hard to find a place where it's affordable and that they accept having children? How desperate is this country for more houses? And we actually have a number, three and a half million. That's how many more homes we need by 2030. Condos, houses, rental apartments, townhomes, we need it all. And that three and a half million is on top of what we're already expected to build. I'm not sure that people understand that number. The scale of the challenge is just absolutely enormous. Uh, we have housing affordability challenges for the middle-class Canadians. We have housing challenges for low-income Canadians, the homeless. So we're starting to talk about multiple crises. Aled Abierworth is the Deputy Chief Economist at the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corp. The CMHC put out that number, 3.5 million more homes, as a way to ring an alarm bell. But even if people are paying attention, that's still a long way from fixing the problem. There is no silver bullet. It's thousands of them. It's a range of different policies. And um, I don't really know how it got solved. I mean, we, we could come up, you know, a thousand lists of things to be done, but will they be? That resignation in his voice is not what you want to hear from the CMHC. Its whole job is affordable housing. And what gets him down isn't just a thousand things that need to be done. It's that each of those things is handled by a different department, at a different level of government. And this is the boring truth at the heart of Canada's housing problem. It's death by a thousand bureaucratic cuts. At the outset, you go and you meet with uh, your city planning officials, and you'll work through... Dan Dixon is an executive at the Minto Group. It's a secondary plan, a community development plan. How does your building fit into that? Minto is a big Canadian home builder. have a plan that you think is going to work. Uh, that will go to planning committee, which is the political level. Local politics is where things can bog down. City councillors are elected by voters who may not want stuff built in their backyard. They will find ways to delay, to frustrate, to go back, to have you rethink about this. Don't like the potential for shadows. Don't like the potential for traffic impacts. Don't like the community design. There's myriad ways to provide comments back on a development proposal. So how long can it take before you start building? From start of your project to breaking ground, best case scenario, two to three years. And in some cases in the city of Toronto, for example, we have faced uh, a challenge of 10 years. It was 10 years from our initial application to the final receipt of building permit. This is a city with a self-declared housing crisis. For a city that is trying to build for rapidly increasing population, we need to find ways to do this quicker. And that's just getting permits. When it comes to affordability, Dan Dixon says governments can also make other moves. Municipal development charges, land transfer taxes, HST and GST can add more than 20% to housing costs. Waiving those charges could drop the cost of building a $700,000 condo unit by $150,000. That's one way to help bring down rent prices. 
Of course, waiving this charge or that fee comes with a cost. To do it, some level of government needs to be willing to sacrifice something. Carolyn Weitzman says this is where things get hung up. She's a housing researcher at the University of Ottawa. Housing has been a hot potato, and people have been handing it from the federal government, handed it to the provincial government. Some provincial governments handed it to municipalities. Municipalities said, ouch, 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 I don't know what to do. Fixing housing could mean all three levels of government have to hold the potato. She says cities need to ignore NIMBY voters. Provinces need to ante up for infrastructure. The feds can pull dozens of financial levers. Boring stuff like changing tax policy for apartment buildings. This could all happen tomorrow. But will it? Someone has to take leadership, and it sort of makes sense for the federal government to take leadership because they're the government with the most resources and the most powers, and with that comes the greatest responsibilities. Technically, housing falls to the provinces. Practically, cities are closest to the problem. But Ottawa, Weizmann says, has the deepest pockets. It can pull the big policy levers that could make a difference to housing supply on a national level. And the feds have done it before, rammed stuff through provinces and big city mayors. It was a long time ago, after the Second World War. Canada helped enable building a million homes between 44 and 1960. Government land, pre-approved designs that were just stamped down uh, in new neighborhoods, direct relationships with municipalities to enable super quick building, prefab that would allow homes to be built in 36 hours. It was an extraordinary effort. Is Canada willing to make this kind of wartime effort today? Weitzman says nothing focuses the mind of a politician like losing an election. And she thinks housing is at a political boiling point. It was like 30 years of, ah, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch the hot potato. And now the hot, boy, to mix my metaphors, the hot potato has come home to roost. Federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev is all over the liberals on housing. And the feds did put housing at the top of their agenda at a cabinet retreat a few weeks ago. Weitzman thinks we could see a real plan soon. Because people just need a place to live. Kenya Eridus knows all about that. When we talked, she was out of the shelter and in her new home. One of 45 new social housing units in southeast Calgary. Stuff can get built in this country, but it takes a lot. Her home needed a builder, a nonprofit, the feds, and the city to work together. And it was fast-tracked. Less than three years from drawing board to moving in. I'm looking literally outside the window, and I have everything to walk to. Like I have the superstore, I have like the banks, I have <laughs> the theater here. I have everything to walking distance for me. Being here is like, okay, it's the, it's the dream, the Canadian dream, I would say. <laughs> so that's one down. Three and a half million more homes to go. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. 
those of us going through inflation for the first time are learning a lot. Like how it's kind of a game of high-priced whack-a-mole. Car prices went up, then used cars. Then almost anything you buy at the grocery store, its price popped up. And just when you kind of get used to it, along comes something else. Like travel. A bunch of Canadians took trips this summer. And our producer Ellis Cho found when they booked a hotel? Sticker shock. Sunny Park vacations with her family several times a year. Road trips across Canada, somewhere warm for the winter. Every bit of spare change goes into her travel budget. But this past summer? I was shocked despite the fact that I knew the high season meant higher prices. In Canada, the average price for a hotel room hit a record high this summer. In July, it was more than $230 a night. That's 25% more than before the pandemic. That's just part of what you get when you live in a high inflation environment. Jan Freitag is with the CoStar Group. They research commercial real estate around the world. Everything gets more expensive. Have we ever seen prices like this before? No. Is it a little bit of sticker shock when you haven't been traveling since 2020, really? He says hotel prices have gone up because, well, everything else has gone up. Their costs, their labor costs, their costs of food goes up and, and their housekeeping costs and housekeeping materials. And they're giving that, they're handing that over to the customer. Another reason for steeper hotel prices? High interest rates. Wayne Smith teaches hospitality and tourism at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every single hotel is leveraged, is mortgaged, basically. So if you had $20 million mortgage and your, and your interest rates went up one or two points, <laughs> that's a big deal, especially coming after two, two or three years of losses. The pandemic cost hotels big time. Holidays were a no-go and they lost one of their biggest customers. A lot of businesses cut business travel. So we're seeing that that budget hasn't come back yet. Hotels are trying to make up for all that lost business. And vacationers are paying the price. Does this mean there are no more deals to be had? Well, that depends. So, for example, if you want Toronto during Taylor Swift's concerts... You're going to be paying $800 to $1,000 a night, and Toronto's going to be sold out. If you want to come the third week of January, where there's not much going on, you can get a really, really good deal. Toronto in January? It better be a good deal. Wayne Smith expects hotel prices to stay high. He says this is just the new reality. My guess is the day of the less than $200 hotel room is going to be pretty much gone, especially in the major cities. So what does that mean for travelers like Sunny Park and her family? Well, this summer, they skipped hotel rooms altogether and stayed two weeks with the in-laws who just happened to live in France. This was one of the best vacations because not only we stay with family, we save money, 
but we were eating together. We were, you know, looking, going to places together. So, so it was awesome. So would you stay with family again? Yep. Yep. For sure. But not more than four days. <laughs> For the cost of living, I'm Alice Cho. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberschrud. Get ready, Canada. Some big concerts are coming your way. Coldplay, Aerosmith, Sting, Iron Maiden. This week in Vancouver? Beyonce. But tickets to her shows are not cheap. The first ticket is $1,200, but the one right next to it is $11,000, and then it's $18,000, and then it's $19,000, $26,000, $29,000, $30,000, Daniel Nerman. <laughs> That's really what Zay DeGamse saw when he looked up ticket prices to one of Beyonce's concerts. I don't care if she's giving me a lap dance. I am not paying that much money for like a concert ticket. I guess not. <laughs> okay, so he doesn't want to spend thousands, but Zayd is a huge Beyonce fan. But the money, Danielle, even if you're a huge fan, some of these ticket prices are just wild. I know. I mean, look at what happened with Taylor Swift. Even when a system was put in to give fans a shot at paying a reasonable price for her tickets, resellers still got their hands on them and were listing them for hundreds of dollars above face value. So if you're a fan, is this just the way of things now? Like you're kind of at the mercy of Ticketmaster, bots, resellers. It feels like the game is kind of rigged. It does. It's bad. But what if I told you there might be a way to beat those resellers at their own game? By using the power of economics. Well, then I'm listening. All right. So I enlisted Zay to help me try out this idea. Met him in Toronto a couple hours before the Beyonce concert, and our plan was to wait until the very last minute to buy tickets. The theory? That as it got closer to showtime, Paul, resellers who couldn't sell those tickets at those wildly high prices would start lowering them. So you're talking supply and demand. Too much supply, not enough demand. That is what brings prices down. Well, it does, but would it work for something like Beyonce? Because you got to figure that's a pretty hot ticket. It is, but there were tons of expensive tickets still floating around, you know, weeks, days, even hours before her Toronto concerts. So she had back-to-back -back shows. So I was able to see what happened with ticket prices for the first one. I was watching them online. An hour before the show started, ticket prices started tanking. I saw a $1,000 floor seat drop to 170 bucks. So I was pretty sure Zayd and I would be able to score cheap seats to Beyonce's next show. But not just cheap seats, Paul, great seats. All right. What were you looking to pay? 200 bucks a ticket. All right. Not cheap, but not $30,000. What did you end up doing? 
We started with StubHub and SeatGeek. Those are the resale websites where anyone can sell tickets. But every time Zaid thought he'd found a ticket that was cheap and in a great section, it just disappeared. Now it's just like an algorithmic bidding war without anybody's faces visible, and it's trash. (laughs) I hate it. It's disgusting. Okay, so StubHub, that's a no-go. No, but thankfully that's not the only place to get tickets. You can still go old school, Paul, and go outside the venue. Concert tickets! Concert tickets! Scalpers! Like it's Metallica on the Speed of Sound Tour. (laughs) Believe it or not, people still try to hawk tickets outside concert stadiums. The other place you can find people selling off their tickets is Facebook on buy and sell groups. Zaid and I decided that's where we'd focus our efforts because we were seeing some great deals. And how'd that go? Well, before we made any offers, I talked to Shiraz Mawani. He's an independent ticket broker in Toronto, and he went over some of the risks. Like, when you're dealing with sellers on Facebook, you need to ask yourself this. Is their Facebook profile actually look legit? Like, do they seem like a real person? So if the seller just created their profile, like, I don't know, a day ago, that's probably a red flag. Yeah, the potential to get scammed here feels high. You have to be careful. Even Shiraz, who is a ticket broker, has been burned. So he told me this story. It happened when he found last-minute tickets to a Leafs game on Craigslist. Lower bowl, fantastic price. He says the seller was really responsive, really friendly, and he sent the guy an e-transfer. And then? Nothing. No response. The guy's disappears. I try and email him. No, like, email's bouncing back. Nothing I can do at this point. And now I'm out 650 bucks. I still have to find seats for this individual I was trying to buy seats for. And I've just been scammed. (laughs) So he's out six bills. Yeah. When you're dealing with resellers online, you got to use PayPal. That way you're protected if the person who sold you the tickets doesn't give you the tickets. What happens if you use a site like StubHub? Will it do anything for you? Yeah, they'll refund your tickets if things go wrong. But I mean, if things go wrong, your night is ruined. That's what happened to Amanda Diaz. She bought a ticket off a StubHub reseller. But when she rolled up to the gate at Rogers Center for the Beyonce concert, she found out that her ticket had already been scanned. So she couldn't get in. We've spent currently uh, over $100 in Ubers. Uh, I don't know how much money in outfits. (laughs) It was girls' night. It was. I have a four-year-old at home, so I made major arrangements. <laughs> she even lined up babysitting. I hope things went better for you. Uh, it was a crazy night, Paul. I mean, someone tried to sell us tickets in a section that didn't even exist. Well, those aren't going to be very good seats then, are they? No. And, I mean, so many scammers. Like, this concert was in Toronto, right? And there's people from Florida and Mexico City telling me, hey, I've got seats for you in your price range. And we didn't want to deal with that. One hour to go, tickets are disappearing and prices are dropping. But we still didn't have seats. And then, 15 minutes before Beyonce was supposed to take the stage, we found a pair of tickets on Facebook in our price range. So your theory is working. The tickets are getting cheaper and they're becoming available and you're going to get some. Yeah, and they were put up for offer by this guy named Ben. And so we reached out. (gasps) He sent them. He sent tickets, and his name is not even Ben. It's Matt. Wait, are these actually from Ticketmaster? Let's check. Yes, view tickets. Oh my God, am I gonna see Beyonce tonight? High five. 
It worked. Well, Ben, Matt, whatever the guy's name was, he only sent us one ticket. But it was front row in the section just above the floor. And get this. The face value for that seat was $680, and we got it for 200 bucks. I love the value here. But you said just one ticket? Yeah. The seller ghosted us. I found out later that he'd sold that second ticket for more money to someone else. But that's the thing about this strategy, Paul. It's a gamble, and you have to be prepared not to go to the concert. So who got the ticket? Who got the ticket? Uh, Zayd, of course. I mean, I like Beyonce, but Zayd, he loves Beyonce. I really don't really have any that many high expectations. I'm kidding. I have the highest expectations because it's Beyonce. I feel like this is kind of like almost the only concert you need to see. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked. So I'm in the front row. There will be nobody but in front of me. This is... Thank you so much. You're so welcome. I hope you have the best time. Take pictures. I will. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. 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 I hope he had the best time. Thanks, Danielle. You're welcome. Have you ever scored great tickets for something? How'd you do it? Give us a call and tell us your story. Our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. That's the cost of living for this week. Coming up on next week's show. You're kind of sticking it to the airlines who many people feel like they've been ripped off by an airline or that they've paid too much. So I think a bit of it is this like, take that airlines. How exactly are travelers sticking it to airlines? By doing something called skip lagging. It's a travel hack that really Robin Hood would love. Taking from the airlines and giving to, well, yourself. But the airlines, they don't like skip lagging, and they're fighting back. That's next week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline T-Rex Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Habertrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.